I'm Janet Fife Yeomans. I covered Arvind Malat's 1996 trial in the New South Wales Supreme Court for the murders of seven backpackers and the abduction of an eighth. The Daily Telegraph is going to give you a front row seat as we recreate the trial of the century. As Australia's worst serial killer, Malat has fascinated and disgusted people the world over. His killing spree ended the carefree way young Australians and international backpackers travelled around the country. Until the bodies of his seven victims were found in the Belangelo State Forest south of Sydney in 1992 and 1993, hitchhiking in Australia was almost considered a rite of passage for young people. The shocking deaths of those young backpackers who were defiled, stabbed and shot in the forest made Malat's trial emotionally draining, but at the same time it had everything that makes real-life courtroom drama so riveting. As early as 6am every morning, at every tea break and again at lunchtime, the public queued for a place in court. In the seats reserved for them, there was not a day when Malat's victims were not represented by their families. Victorians Deborah Everest and James Gibson, who were the first to go missing on December 29, 1989. Germans Anja and her boyfriend Gabor Neugebauer, who disappeared on Boxing Day 1991. Simone Schmidl, who had been travelling alone when she was last seen on December 20, 1991, hitching south from Sydney to Melbourne to meet her mother who was flying in for a holiday. And British friends Caroline Clark and Joanne Walters, who disappeared in April 1992. Ivan Malat, 51, road worker, fifth oldest in a family of 14, divorced, one daughter, had pleaded not guilty. The police and prosecution had no confession, no eyewitness to the murders. Who they did have was the one who got away, British backpacker Paul Onions. In a crisp suit and tie, he was the first witness. The Crown Prosecutor was the experienced and skilful Mark Tedeschi QC. Would you please tell the court your full name? Paul Thomas Onions. You are resident in the UK? Yes. Which city do you come from? Willanall. Your occupation, please? Commissioned testing engineer. In 1989, did you leave England to go for an extended overseas trip? Yeah. Eight days into his trip... Onions caught the train from Sydney Central Station to Liverpool to thumb a lift down the Hume Highway. It was Thursday, January 25, 1990. Tedeschi methodically took the nervous witness through his decision to walk into the news agency at a group of shops known as Lombardo's at Casula and buy a Coke and Mars bar. What happened then? This gentleman approached me and he said, do you need a lift? And I thought, yeah, great. What happened after that? He just asked me where I was heading, and I said to Canberra. What did you say? I said I'd like to get to Mildura, in that direction, Canberra. Would you tell us what sort of conversation there was between you after you started driving off? Yeah, initially I introduced myself as Paul. He said his name was Bill. Did you then ask him some questions about himself? Yeah, I just asked him what he did for a job. What did he say? He was working on the roads. Did he say anything about his background? 
I think basically he said his family was not Australian. Well, they spoke with an Australian accent. Did he say where his family was from? Yugoslavia. How long had you been in the car before you came to slow down at the traffic lights? Must have been uh, 30 minutes, an hour. That's what it seemed like anyhow at the time. You say there was a fork in the road and traffic lights. Yeah, yeah, I distinctly remember that. And you say it was after that that his attitude changed? That is correct. What sort of opportunity did you have to look at this man during the course of the journey thus far? Well, initially it was when he first approached me at the shops. That's, that's when my first impression was I was really happy and I thought, great. So I wasn't looking that closely at the time anyway. It was only once we got on the freeway, that's when I was getting a bit nervous, when his attitude has changed and I was feeling very tired. When you travel, you just want to make sure you stay awake and when you get a bit nervous, that's how I felt at the time. Were you looking more at him at that stage? Yeah. I started to look at the side a lot more then because I was getting a bit nervous and that's when I made up my mind. You were looking at him more? Yeah. After this slowdown with the traffic lights, would you tell the court what happened after that? Well, like I say, we proceeded on. I was feeling tired and then because he was... His attitudes changed. There wasn't much conversation. And we travelled for about 30 minutes or something like that and then started to slow down a little. I was getting a bit nervy. And when you drive yourself, you start looking in the mirror yourself just to see what the problem was. There weren't any vehicles on the road. I couldn't see what the problem was. He was slowing the vehicle down? Slowing down, looking in the mirrors. He was? Yeah, so I did myself. And you say you could not see any reason why he had slowed down? That's correct. What happened then? He said, you lose the radio after about this distance, so I just want to pull over and put some tapes on. That was the main excuse he made for pulling over, basically. Did you think anything about that? I thought it was odd at the time, because there were cassettes between the seats. Was there some sort of console between the two seats? Yeah, that's correct. You saw some cassettes there? Yeah. For how long was he slowing down? Just like quite a short period, but straight away, really. As soon as he started to slow down, he was making the decision he was going to get some cassettes. What happened after you started to slow down and he said that he would get some tapes because the radio had faded out? Obviously, I was getting a bit unnerved then. It was a bit of a hill, and as we got over it, he pulled over to the left. And he pulled over into the breakdown lane? Yeah, just over to the left-hand side. And what happened then? Obviously, I was a bit edgy then. I thought, I'll get out of the vehicle and just stretch my legs a bit, because I was wondering what was happening, basically. I was a bit edgy, to be honest. I thought, this guy's giving me a lift, he must be okay. And then I decided I was paranoid-like. Did you get out of the vehicle? Yeah. What happened when you got out? I just stretched my legs. And then he was agitated and said, Why are you getting out of the vehicle? Why are you getting out of the vehicle? What did you say? Just to stretch my legs. And then he was messing about under the seat then. Under which seat? The driver's seat. What did you do then? I thought, well, you know, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. I thought it was a paranoid thought. Calm down, what are you doing? I just got back in the passenger seat and put the seatbelt back on. Did you close the door? Yes. Then what happened? He got back in the driver's seat himself and I thought, OK, we're OK. And straight away he says, I'll look under the seat one more time for some cassettes. I thought, well, what's going on now? And then he got back out of the vehicle. 
He looked under the seat and produced a revolver. Where did he produce the revolver from? From under the driver's seat. Was it from under the front of the seat? The side of the seat? Uh, In my memory, from under the front of the seat. Where was the gun pointed when he produced it? Straight at me. What happened then? What did he say? I could feel my voice shaking. I just couldn't believe it. I said, calm down, what's the problem? You know, it was all happening in seconds, like... I started taking my seatbelt off, and he said, put that seatbelt back on. What did he actually say? What words did he actually use? First of all, he said, do you know what this is? I said, yes, yes, of course, please calm down. He said, this is a robbery. I felt it really odd. I only had a backpack anyway. So I thought, you know, what do you need? I started to take my seatbelt off. He said, put it back on, put it back on. So I just put it back on, and he leaned over under the driver's seat again. Had you, in fact, undone the seatbelt at that time? Yeah, but I put it back on, and then he leaned under the seat again, and I saw this some rope slipping out of the bag. Where did he get that from? From under the driver's seat. Can you give us any description of the bag or rope at all? No, it was just so fast. Just a bag with dirty coloured rope, and that was it. I've seen the rope. That scared me more than the gun. What happened then? Once I saw the rope, I undone my seatbelt and jumped straight out of the vehicle. And once you got out of the vehicle, what did you do? I just ran. Obviously, I just ran. Along the highway? Correct. He was yelling, stop or I'll shoot. And I heard the gun go off. I started dodging, just weaving as best I could. Like Up until the time that you heard the gun go off, did you look back at all? No, no, I just went. Then after you heard the gun go off, you started to weave? Vehicles coming over in the distance, you couldn't see the vehicles because there was a hill. And as they come over the mound of the hill, I could see vehicles. People were seeing what was happening. They were slowing down and just driving off. I was just trying to stop somebody and they were just driving off. You were trying to stop some vehicles? How many vehicles? Two vehicles. How did you try to stop them? Just standing in front of them. And what did they do? Slowed down and accelerated away. And what happened after that? Well, I'd just about given up. Then I looked around and the man was right by me again. He was right upon me with my shirt. Holding on to your shirt? That's how it felt. I tried to free myself. Were you still standing at that point? I looked around. He was right there. I thought, this is my last chance. I've got to get away. Did you see whether he was carrying the gun? Not that time. Not in my memory. Then I broke free. I thought, the next vehicle that comes over the hill, I'm going to stand still in front of it. Even if it runs me over, that's it. So that's what I did. Did you break away? Yeah. How did you break away? Just just broke free. Then did you see another vehicle coming? Not initially. I had to wait until the next one come over. While you were waiting, what were you doing? Running towards the hill. And did you look back at that stage? Not when I broke free, no. As you were running, after you broke free from him, did you see a vehicle? Yeah, one came over the hill and I just ran straight in front of it and made it stop. Then I walked, ran, around the side and there was a sliding door on it. It was a van? Yeah, a van. There was a sliding door. I sort of jumped inside, shut the door and put the button down. And up until you left the scene in the van, did you look back towards this man or his vehicle? 
Yeah, just to be sure he wasn't following us. What did you see about him? I just saw him standing there going sort of smiling, you know, just looking at me as though, you know, it was just a lasting impression. The prosecution case was that one person, either alone or with another or others, was involved in all seven murders, as well as the attempted kidnapping of Paul Onions. The trial judge, Justice David Hunt, allowed Onions' evidence to be used as coincidence evidence against Malat in the seven murder charges because it was ruled they had all occurred in substantially similar circumstances. Those other backpackers had all sat in the same seat as Paul Onions. As best you can, would you give us a description of the man who was the driver of this vehicle and produced the revolver and the rope? A dark, strong-looking person. What else can you tell us? Man at a mow coming to here. What sort of moustache was it? Well, it was like a thick moustache coming to there. Is there a term you use to describe his moustache? At the time, I thought it was like a Merv Hughes moustache, like I was new to Australia. Can you tell us anything about his mouth? Just the lips for a bit. They seemed to be protrude a little bit when I was looking from the side. If you saw that person in this courtroom now, would you be able to identify the man that was the driver of that car? Yes. Would you have a look around this courtroom and tell the court if you see that man in this courtroom? Yes. Would you indicate him, please? The guy there. Just a metre from the dock, he pointed at Malat, who stared straight back. Onions had reported the attack to Barrow Police at the time, but the paperwork was lost. Its significance became obvious after the bodies of the backpackers were found in the Belangolo State Forest. Onions had escaped just short of the forest turn-off on the Hume Highway. In November 1993, he had called the Police Backpacker Task Force hotline, describing his attacker and the four-wheel drive. From a lineup of photographs, he had picked out number four. It was Ivan Malat. Malat's barrister, Terry Martin, had to challenge his identification of Malat without losing the sympathy of the jury. Mr Onions, I'm suggesting to you that your identification of number four is mistaken. You understand? I'm not calling you a liar. News doesn't have to be boring. The Brits have given Prince Harry a new nickname after yet another tell-all interview. Oh, God, is it the ginger winder? <laughs> <laughs> Let the team at news.com.au get you up to speed each day with their podcast from the newsroom. A couple were busted joining the Mile High Club. Well, I guess they can't fly Virgin anymore. <laughs> Politics, sport, red carpets, royals. Get all the goss in just a few minutes. Follow from the newsroom wherever you get your podcast from. I've only stretched the imagination. I'm simply suggesting to you that you are mistaken in your identification. Do you agree with me or not? For what reason? What mistake? I'm suggesting you made a mistake. That is all. I find it hard to determine if I made a mistake. Just looking at something, that's the image I saw. That is the image you saw? Yeah. And that is what you recall and you can't say anything more than that? Yes. I was only there working on what image I see. I'm sorry? I was only working on what I could see. I understand. You understand. You did your best. Correct. Such is the layout of the courtroom 
that the families of the backpackers were only metres from Malat. If he had extended his right arm, Herbert Schmidl could have smashed his daughter's killer in the face. The bus driver from Germany had been called to identify some of his daughter Simone's camping gear. It was one of the images of the trial, implanted in the memory of everyone in court that day, as Mr Schmidl clenched his right fist, gritted his teeth and whispered a German expletive to Malat as he walked past Ivan in the dock on his way from the witness box. But the worst of the family's ordeal was yet to come, as the pathologist who carried out the post-mortems on all seven of their children, Dr Peter Bradhurst, was called to tell the jury how they had died. Britain's Caroline Clark, 21, and Joanne Walters, 22, had been in Australia for several months and had met through the Sydney backpacker scene. In England, Caroline had worked as an assistant catering manager at a pizza hut to save money. In Wales, Joanne had trained to be a nanny and a nursery nurse. From King's Cross, they had telephoned their parents to tell them of their plans to head south to go fruit picking. Believing in safety in numbers, they always hitchhiked in pairs. On September 10, 1992, theirs were the first two bodies to be found. They were lying off the Long Acre fire trail in the forest. Dr Bradhurst, would you tell us about the condition of the body of Joanne Walters? The body of Joanne Walters was discovered in the bushland at the Belangelo State Forest. The body was lying face down under the overhang of a rock and was covered with leaf litter and sticks. The body was clothed. There were numerous leaves and sticks and soil adherent to the clothing and to the skin on the front of the body. Moderate decomposition had occurred. She was wearing black lace-up shoes, black socks, blue jeans and a navy blue T-shirt and bra. The top button of the jeans was done up, but the three lower buttons were undone. There was no lower underwear on the body. The navy blue T-shirt was pulled up at the front of the chest over the breasts. There were a number of stab wounds through the shirt, mainly on the back of the shirt, which matched the stab wounds found on the body. The bra was still clipped at the back but pulled up over the breasts. There was a gag made of discoloured cloth tied around the mouth with the knot tied behind the angle of the right side of the jaw. This cloth had on it an illegible label. There was what appeared to be an untied ligature lying around the front and sides of the neck. There were 14 stab wounds to the chest and to the root of the neck. There were two stab wounds to the back of the base of the neck. Could I ask you to pause there? How many of them would, in your opinion, have caused paralysis? Just the one. What degree of force would have been required to cause that wound? I would say a severe degree of force would have been required. In layman's words, Joanne Walters had been stabbed 20 times, including one wound to the top of her spine, which would have paralysed her. There was evidence she had been sexually assaulted and strangled. She had been gagged with three strips torn from a size 41 glow-weave shirt, the same size that Malat wore. What did you observe about the body of the late Caroline Clark? 
Her body was hidden under a fallen tree and covered by branches and leaf litter, uh, not far from the body of her friend Joanne Walters. The body was lying face down with the head turned to the left and with the hands resting under the chin. The body was fully clothed but in an advanced state of decomposition. Around the head of the body was wrapped a red-coloured cloth in which there were a number of holes consistent with bullet holes. She was fully clothed and was wearing black lace-up Doc Martens shoes, black socks, blue jeans, pink or discoloured white underpants, a khaki shirt buttoned down the front and a front-clipping bra but with the clip undone. There were ten gunshot entry wounds to the skull. Caroline Clark had a maroon cloth, possibly Joanna's sloppy joe, tied around her head. She was shot ten times through the top of the head with a gun fitted with a silencer and was stabbed through the lower back into her right lung. There was evidence she was sexually assaulted. She was bound during the stabbing with white sash cords later found stained with her blood in Malat's garage. Deborah Everest and James Gibson, both 19, were heading south from Sydney to an alternative lifestyle festival near Albury on the New South Wales Victorian border. James was a bit of a hippie who had deferred an art course to go travelling. Deborah, who wanted to be a journalist, was travelling after her father had a successful cancer operation. On November 5, 1993, near the Morris Creek Fire Trail, their bodies were the next to be found, almost four years after they went missing. The remains of Deborah Everest were found lying in a shallow grave and covered with branches, leaf litter and some soil. Some distance away there was a grave site similarly covered of her boyfriend James Gibson. The remains of Deborah Everest consisted of a number of ribs, vertebrae and the left half of her lower jaw and the hyoid bone. Located at various distances away from the grave site were her clothing, her black bra, her shoe and a number of bones that had been scavenged by animals. Other items found at the scene were a khaki hat, a section of a fob chain and a black pair of pantyhose. The black pantyhose had the lower before end we of... come Before we come to the pantyhose, located at various distances away from the gravesite, were there some other items? Paragraph four? Um, oh, oh, right, yes. Uh, located at uh, various distances away from the gravesite were her skull and a black bra, her shoe, and a number of bones that had been scavenged by animals. Any other items, as you mentioned, a khaki hat and a fob chain and black pantyhose? Yes. Proceeding with the black pantyhose. Uh, The black pantyhose had the lower end of each leg tied in a slipknot to form a loop, with the loop of one leg being slightly larger than the other, and the appearances were consistent with the pantyhose having been used as some form of restraint, for example, a hog tie or a similar type of restraint. As well, there was a stab wound through the lower left rib, which would have entered the chest somewhere through the lower part of the left chest at about 90 millimetres to the left of the spine. Was that the front of the chest or the back of the chest? Uh, It was on the back of the left chest, the left side of the chest. 
the right side of the head and the fractured jaw may well have led to unconsciousness, intracranial hemorrhage, brain damage and possibly death. Deborah Everest had possibly been hogtied and may have been sexually assaulted. Her skull and jaw were fractured. There were four slicing wounds to her head and a stab wound in the back of her chest, possibly into her heart. I'll proceed now to your post-mortem examination of the late James Gibson. Yes. Could you give us, please, a summary of your observations at the scene and your findings during the autopsy? Yes. The remains of James Gibson were covered with branches, leaf litter and some soil some distance away from the remains of Deborah Everest. These remains were virtually intact and the body was lying on its left side as though it was in, a, in the coma or the fetal position. Dunlop volley size 11 shoes were still around the feet. There was a pendant made of a chain with a coin which had a central hole around the neck. The trouser zip, the, the zip was undone, but the top button of the trousers was still done up. The skeleton was almost complete. There was evidence of injury to a number of the ribs and to the, to the thoracic spine, these injuries being consistent with the stab wounds. James Gibson had multiple stab wounds, including one through the top of his spine, which would have caused paralysis. He may also have been sexually assaulted. Simone Schmidl, 21, was heading to Melbourne to meet up with her mum, who was flying in. The German had been staying with a friend in Sydney whose mother tried to talk her out of hitchhiking. But she had pointed to a travel book that said hitchhiking was safe in Australia. On November 1, 1993, the body of Simone, who met her terrifying death alone, was found near the intersection of the Miner's Despair Fire Trail and the Tree Cave Fire Trail. Dr Bradhurst, on 3 and 4 November 1993, did you conduct a post-mortem examination on Simone Loretta Schmidl? Yes, I did. Would you give us a summary, please, of the scene in the forest and your findings during the autopsy? Yes. The skeletal remains of Simone Schmidl were lying face down on the ground with the head turned to the right. The right upper limb was stretched outwards with the forearm and hand above the head. The bones of the left upper limb were found one to two metres away from the main skeleton. Was the body covered with an amount of leaf litter and sticks and general bush debris? Yes, it was. It was covered with branches and leaf litter. Was there a large tree branch over it? Yes. I take it the only remains were skeletal remains? Yes, they were the only remains. If you could continue, please. There was a purple headband around the skull. Simone Schmidl had suffered multiple stab wounds, including one through the top of her spine, causing paralysis. She was probably gagged and sexually assaulted. Gabor Neugebauer, 21, had enrolled to study philosophy at Munich University after his national service and had met Anya, 20, 
at a disco in August 1990. She was working as a draftsperson. They had a flight booked out of Darwin, but decided to head south for a four-day festival first. Their bodies were found in the forest three days after Simone's. Starting with the body of Anya Habsheed, was it on 4 November 1993 that you went to the forest and examined Anya Habsheed's remains? Yes, it was on 4 November 1993. Would you tell the court, please, what you observed about her? No skull was located with the remains and in spite of intense searching by police, no skull has been found to this date. That meant that Anya Habsheed was beheaded. Her head was never found. She was naked from the waist down, possibly gagged or blindfolded, and her hands bound. Could I proceed now, please, to the body of Gabor Neugebauer? Yes. These skeletal remains of Gabor Neugebauer were found in the Belangelo State Forest, well hidden, lying on the right side between and close to a large, thick fork trunk of a fallen tree, within reasonable distance of the skeletal remains of Anya Habsheed. The cause of death was given as gunshot wounds to the head associated with gagging and strangulation. He was shot six times in the head and there was evidence he had been strangled and sexually assaulted. His hands had been possibly bound. As clinical as the pathologist's evidence had to be, the terror of the last moments of all those young people was palpable in what he said. None of them showed evidence of defence wounds. They never had a chance to fight back. Their attacker, or attackers, had been strong enough to totally overpower them. In the next episode, we look at whether Ivan Milat was just a fall guy for his brothers. Are you ready to get an inside look at crime from someone who has investigated some of Australia's worst crimes? It was like Aladdin's cave. The luminol found bloodied footprints and bloodied handprints on a wall. So it's yeah. just like a horror movie. Former homicide detective Gary Jubilant sits down with cops, crims, addicts, victims, small-time cheats and big-town lawyers as they tell their incredible stories. My house got raided. Next thing you know, I got bail refused. Next thing you know, I'm on a truck yeah. to Parkley Prison. Listen to I Catch Killers early and ad-free on Crimex Plus on Apple Podcasts today or wherever you get your podcasts.